0: We're going to break my opinion, ten thousand EMS runs this year. I think we're going to do it
1: in the history of the department.
0: Yeah, we've, we've never broken ten thousand EMS runs, but we go up every year about three to eight percent. It varies, and I think it's going to happen this year.
1: Hey Colerain, thanks for joining us for another episode. Today we're going to be talking about fire stations and the history of our fire department here in Colerain Township. And joining me to do this is Chris Hopkins. Thanks for being here. Hi, good morning. So Chris, tell us a little bit about you and your experience, what you do here for the township, and all of that.
0: Okay. So my personal experience is uh, I'm currently EMS captain, newly changed. I uh, started here part time in 1995, March of 95, as a part time firefighter EMT. Uh, moved up through the ranks, became a paramedic, a part time lieutenant, uh, and then became a career here in 2000. 2004, was promoted to captain and was a shift officer. So I spent 20 years on the companies in rank, and then um, transferred over from shift to the fire training captain position, fire training and education. And I did EMS training as well then. Uh, And then recently in the last month, transferred from fire training, fire and EMS training and education to just EMS operations training and education. Uh, As far as why I'm here today, uh, I'm sort of the unofficial historian of the department. Uh, My stepfather, Daryl Brown, was a 50 year service member. He was the first one to do that for our agency. He started in 1961 and served through 2011. So, and his father was one of the founding members of Dunlap. So, his father, my grandfather, uh, and then my son also came on the department in 2009 and uh, served for five years. And so basically I'm a third generation, of a four generation family in the agency. So we don't have our experience in the gross spec side of things. We're in the Dunlap side of things. Uh, but being around those guys as a kid, I grew up around them. All the festivals, all the social gatherings, the community work that they did. Uh, just knowing them all and obviously the family commitment to it and my stepfather being the actual historian so in his estate when he passed away I received all of the documents sign-in sheets dispatch logs papers everything from geez the 50s through 60s through 70s through 80s so then I tried to chronicle that and there's thousands of pictures and awards and certificates and things so I tried to take that and turn it into something, which folks can see in our administrative complex classroom. And that's basically, I took anything I thought was relevant, and from 1931 through 2004, it just chronicles the history of our agencies, before they were Coleraine and then merging into Coleraine. And I think soon we'll be able to chronicle 2004 to present. So that's kind of why I guess I'm here, is because I'm sort of the unofficial historian.
1: So third generation of four generations, you mm-hmm. said. Yes. Did you always know that you wanted to be involved in the fire department?
0: So absolutely, I did. But here's the interesting thing. You never know where life's going to take you. So uh, I met my wife when I was 15, proposed at 16. She said yes. Uh, we got married when I was 19, moved out immediately. So we were already living out on our own back then. It's 1984. you didn't make a lot of money what it took to be in the fire service, and I worked 12 out of 14 days and traveled in the profession I was in at the time. So I couldn't take the training. I couldn't give the time commitment because it's a major, major time commitment in this profession. Uh, That business that I was working for started to falter a little bit. So I went to my wife and said, hey, this is what I've always wanted to do. Will you you help me or support me in this endeavor? And she said, absolutely. And my boss was amazing, and he helped me transition. Uh, And then I chose my paramedic training because it was right next to where my business was. So everybody kind of gets it about our profession. If they know you want to do it, they'll do what they need to to help you.
1: That's wonderful. That's a sweet story about you and your wife,
0: too. Oh, yeah. No, it's amazing. Best move I ever made.
1: Mm -hmm. (laughs) So let's talk about your father's generation of firefighting. What did you see for that, and how is it different than what you're doing now?
0: It it is night and day. So so if you think about it, I can't really speak for 1931, but I do know the equipment they had. So they essentially had what looked like aluminum or stainless steel helmets. They probably were stainless steel. They wore a rubber coat, which was really just a raincoat. It, It wasn't anything special. And they had rubber boots and blue jeans. That was their firefighting equipment. Uh, if you talk to some of the older guys, the really old guys, uh, they would basically cover their faces with handkerchiefs, kind of like you see the old bank robber, you know, train robber people, just to kind of filter some of the stuff out they're breathing in. Uh, Scott Air Packs is the first air pack I think that they used, and there may have been one before then. It's just my knowledge that they started with Scott. And the Scott Air Pack made it so they could enter into more dangerous environments. Uh, The problem with that is, the deeper we go, the more dangerous environment we go, and the better our equipment, the more risk we're at. So it protects us from minor injuries, but it places us in more serious situations. So if you think about it, we didn't have a line of duty death on our agency from 1931 to 1964. And then in 1964, we had a line of duty death that took two of our members. They were respect members, but I always think of them as all the same. Just one family. Uh, So one of the reasons that was possible is they were wearing Scott equipment and they were able to go in deep enough into this Western Cabin fire that when the incident happened, they were in it. So 15 years earlier, maybe 20 years earlier,
1: they would not have have been that
0: deep. And it would have happened. It would have scared them. It would have been, oh my God. But they would not have perished because they would never have been as deep as they are. So it's it's a blessing and a curse. We reduce our minor injuries and things and we can go deeper and put fires out better but we're also going into environments that are much hotter and much further from the entrance. Mm-hmm. So equipment-wise, it's like night and day. The stuff we wear now... You know, Far cry from rubber coats. Oh, it's unbelievable. It does amazing to keep you from getting burned. You know, hoods and everything. Guys back then didn't even have hoods. So one of them, this was a neighbor who worked for the city fire department, but the same basic principle. He's about 90 years old now. He said they knew when to leave because their ears burned. That was their measurement of, hey, we probably shouldn't be in here where we are. So, a totally different scenario now. We can be in a lot of heat before we realize just how hot it is.
1: I hear you that know? phrase today, too. Your ear's getting warm, well, too, out on fires.
0: We still know, even with our, our hoods that we wear, if our ears are really hot, we still know we're where we probably shouldn't be. But the difference is we don't get injured. They might come out and have blisters on their ears where we come out, wow, that was hot. Uh, and And honestly... It doesn't, you can put most fires out without walking into them. You, you just get near it. Mm-hmm.
1: So. What about the the trucks and the engines and ambulances? So
0: everything is involved. So when you think about the first fire trucks they received, and this is in the Coloring Historical Society documents, so if anybody's interested, they've got great information. We could get into specifics, but I don't think our listeners right now are going to care too deep about specifics, but generalities are. I just think of everything as a stick shift so even when i came on in 1995 we still had one stick shift mini pumper which was like our brush truck so back then i drove a stick shift pretty much everybody had a stick shift somewhere in their family and you probably learned on it because automatic transmissions were kind of a luxury even in the mid 90s not every car was automatic transmission so i was able to drive it right away but some people would come on and be like i they couldn't get used to it. They didn't know what to do because they just didn't have it. Well, back then, all of them were stick shift. So imagine the, the listeners who used to have a stick shift. Imagine it being a twenty-ton vehicle. You know, and, and those folks who drove dump trucks and things—they know. But it's a big difference between driving a small car as a stick shift. And driving something that weighs twenty tons of the stick shift and you have to control it on hills and shift correctly. And
1: I was just thinking you know, about the hills, what a nightmare that would be. But well, we
0: had special procedures to go down Springdale Road Hill because it's so steep if you've ever been out that way. So we actually had a policy on how to go down it because you couldn't get a twenty or forty ton vehicle down it without following its procedure, or at the bottom you couldn't stop. It. Oh wow. So now go back and say, Oh, now it's a stick shift, not an automatic that helps you with retarders and all this other stuff that it's on. Uh, so their capacities were less. They couldn't. They couldn't pump as many gallons per minute. Uh, their lighting was, you know, substandard compared to today. You know, we got LEDs now that you can see us from miles away. Uh, but the vehicles are just bigger, smarter, more ergonomic. Uh, they rode in open cabs. So you when I came on, we had open cab vehicles. Oh my gosh. So literally, I mean, we didn't. I think our last open cab. Well, it was used on the line of duty. Then, so in 2008, our open, our one open cab vehicle fire truck was used on that fire. So you literally rode down the road in a seat, convertible out. style. <laughs> literally, you had a you know shroud, but uh, if you didn't wear your seatbelt or do the right thing, they had what they called man savers, and it would, if you fell, it would catch you from falling off the truck. So those don't exist anymore because everything's closed. Seat belts are mandatory, uh, and in the early volunteers, there weren't enough seats for them, so they literally rode on the back of the truck. Wow! Just like senior movies. Like in movies, yeah. Real. They held on, twenty or thirty miles an hour down roads. Craziest stuff ever. Uh, we didn't have that when I came on, uh, but we did have the open cab mm-hmm. at both agencies I worked at. But here we had one. So ambulance-wise, that, that's kind of a hilarious part. I play poker with some older gentlemen, retired fire chiefs, retired trustees, blah, blah, blah. And we just played the other night, and I knew I was doing this podcast. And I said, hey, I remember some of you guys worked for the funeral companies. You know, it's just kind of flushed it out. I remember seeing those. Because as a kid, I would see the station wagon in the firehouse, and it kind of looked like a hearse. And I wasn't sure it was a hearse. So I was talking to them, and they, they all believed that the original vehicles that ran out of the nursing homes were the hearses.
1: Oh, gosh. So they literally...
0: Just think about that. The vehicle that takes someone in a funeral procession was the same vehicle that would go take to them to the, the hospital. hospital. Uh, and I, they, they were fairly confident in that conversation that that was. I even put it in some notes i made, and I was like, "Oh boy!" And I, and that was kind of my memory. Station wagons back then were big, so they probably were a hearse. You know what I mean? Yeah. It came out. and they did run out of nursing homes, so because there was no EMS in the fire service back then. They had maybe a CPR card, but CPR wasn't invented realistically until the 50s. So in the 30s, when growth spec started, that wasn't a thing. Uh, now we do CPR on animals. We've got animal masks. We've got ambulances. that You can carry five people with, you know, that weigh tons and tons and tons and all this equipment. So we've gone from essentially station wagons to these, what they Basically, basically a mobility. mobile hospital. Yeah, basically, it really is a mobile hospital. We have all the medications and electrical therapies and everything, and the capacity to carry weight. Uh, it's kind of amazing, the difference. You couldn't even stand up in any things because it was a station wagon. The cot mm-hmm. went in the back of a station wagon. So the attendant was
1: just kind of hunched over there with him,
0: and I remember seeing him as a kid and it just, even then I thought it was strange. It's okay. uh, so a big evolution in equipment, like night and day. Our vehicles now, they're enormous. They can pump, you know, fifteen hundred gallons a minute. Uh, we had one that would pump two thousand, it's out of service now, but uh, carries thirty gallons of foam, can carry six firefighters, you know, an aerial that you know can reach one hundred and ten feet, those types of things were back then the biggest ladder they had for a long time was a telescope which was about fifty five feet. So oh. just the generational change of equipment that occurred is amazing, plus cost. Great. Unbelievable what stuff costs right now.
1: When you say it's a mobile hospital, I'm yeah. sure that comes with a price hang tag. we our
0: equipment about 30 years now, because we have to. Right. When, when things cost six hundred thousand to a million dollars, you just keep taking care of them, and that's so we do a good job of taking care of stuff.
1: How about the community presence? Because it, it seems like there are fewer house fires today, yeah, but it. there's more community presence for the fire department. Mm-hmm. It seems like there's there's more bonding with people. You mm-hmm. know, you go out for safety events, mm-hmm. you go for So those things have always
0: happened. So in the history project that I did, this was years ago, It was around 2012 because he passed in 2011. It was kind of how I processed his death was to dig into this whole history thing. And uh, there's pictures of them doing public CPR classes in the 60s. Wow. And I can remember as as a kid around 12, which would have been about 1977, 76, 78, somewhere in there that he brought home the mannequins, full-body mannequins with spit out the little tapes. and t- So this stuff's been going on for a long time. They've always done public safety events. In an annual fire safety expo, we called it. It was just amazing. We worked to Northgate Mall. You know, all 10, 15 departments from localities would send engines. we have clowns, and you know, air care would land, and we would spray fire hoses. It was just the most amazing thing. So the engagement you see has always been happening even back in the volunteer days. The difference is we now have the staffing to do it around the clock, where before you know, they, they, were, they were carpenters, bricklayers, concrete workers, business managers, mechanics, whatever the big jobs were back then. They worked during the day. So there weren't as many, many of these things during the day. They were Monday nights or weekends and things like that. So now that we're a, a professional department with, you know, up to 33 people on staff, we can do many more things. And that's probably what you're noticing uh, is that for the last, I would say, more, my entire career, uh, we've always done a lot of that and we can do it during the day. So we're in the schools more because mm-hmm. we're here. Where before they weren't here, they, they were dispatched. Right. They had you know, day people. jobs and yeah, then they, they were volunteers. Everybody. Like there was nobody here during the day till the 70s. So in the 70s, it changed. They hired a few people with some federal grants and things. And ironically, the first ones only made $10,000 a year.
1: Oh, my gosh.
0: And uh, there was another round or batch in 1984 that only made $19,000. Now, granted, inflation cost a living, but still, $10,000 a year doesn't sound like a
1: lot, yeah, even in the 70s. Especially when they're risking their lives. Yeah. They don't have, like you said, the, the equipment that they have today to keep them protected so I mean, and insulated.
0: Yeah. And it was paid for by feds. It wasn't even, you know, it wasn't. The township paid for it. It was the federal government helped provide these salaries through a CEDA grant. And I can't remember what the ac- acronym, we have so many acronyms, and this is something I didn't live or breathe. So uh, just think about that, that they still couldn't even afford it. They had to get federal help to start it. Right. To, tend to Those guys, and then the 1984 guys were different. They, they were hired traditionally, paid through the township, uh,
1: So a couple of our firehouses have, Names on them. Mm-hmm. We've got the Corky Snyder. One. Can you talk a little bit about who those people were and their influence in the community to the point where we named a firehouse after them? Right.
0: So traditionally, fire chiefs have served for very long periods of time. Uh, as the fire the fire service evolved, you tended to get one strong leader that came into power. Like it's not like president United States, but you know they put in charge. Mm-hmm. Then they stayed a long time because of their dominant personality and their leadership ability. So back in the day, you'd have a fire chief serve 20, 30, 40, 50 years. It was not uncommon, wow. just the way it worked. We've completely flipped now to where they're they're looking at it as a four to seven year thing. And uh, you know we're going to have three fire chiefs in a 10 year span mm-hmm. where we didn't have, we had two in a 60 years, back. You know, yes. so, so it's just amazing the difference. Uh, but those two gentlemen, uh, Cloyce Corky yeah. Sniders, Cloyce doesn't sound as cool as Corky, right? So uh, he was originally a Grossbeck volunteer, great guy, and uh, he just a dominant, one of those just people who mm-hmm. commanded a room, commanded a presence, and he became chief as a volunteer and then Back then, it was kind of voted in and out, like if you didn't want or need to do it, there would be another guy. So Grossbeck had a series of a lot of changes of fire chiefs, if you look at their history on the Historical Society website. Then all of a sudden, you could see where Corky came back in and just sort of just kind of took control of things. Uh, And then in 1975, they merged with uh, Dunlap. The township was just getting too big. Lots of people, lots of services, lots of traffic. And they recognized the need to become a more you know, modern fire department with regular staffing and blah, blah, blah. So he was a natural fit for that because of his just raw leadership ability. So then he led the department until Bruce Smith. So uh, Coyce, Corky Snyder, they named 26 after him because that's the area he started. He, that's not the building he started in because there were several Prospect fire department buildings. But that's him. That's where he was. That's where he lived. That's where he worked. That's where he started. Uh, so they named after him to honor him for his service uh, posthumously. Uh,
1: mm-hmm.
0: And then Chief Smith mm-hmm. took the reins from Cloyce Court, Chief Snyder. And then he served for 37 years total. I believe it was 37. And he led our department for decades and decades and decades. And basically through my formative years here through the agency. So he took us from pretty much a... Very few career, lots of part time to mostly career, less part time. And not there's anything wrong with part time. Part time's amazing. Where I started, great. Even volunteers, amazing. My history of volunteers, I love every one of them. But that took a lot of leadership ability to to get the taxpayers and the leadership of the township to say, yes, we need to do this. So he led us through that massive change in from becoming a more professional department.
1: And really, a I cultural shift too. Complete
0: cultural shift. You you can't even imagine. I was around, so just imagine the fighting that went on because you're you're trying to go with with Snyder, always Corky Snyder. You trying to go from volunteer to like a part time or little bit of career, little bit of, or a lot of volunteer, and then 1984 went from a little bit of career to a little more career with the initiation of part-time and the elimination of volunteers mm-hmm. just imagine the the emotions that went into that because what makes volunteerism so special is they get paid like a dollar around back then and that was only so they could get insurance if they were injured or killed it wasn't like they were doing it for for the living. dollar <laughs> yeah. they had to pay them something to get these these benefits so you had all these incredibly passionate People who lived in a township that just wanted to serve their community and essentially couldn't because the agency was becoming something else. Mm-hmm. And it had to happen because Co-Rain went from very few people to a lot of people and a lot of business and a lot of traffic and the mall and all the. And you just couldn't do it with a volunteer because mm-hmm. the run volume was increasing to the point where you couldn't get people to volunteer because just, they just didn't have the time. Right. They would constantly be running. So it was a necessary evolution. Chief Schneider led the agency through that, that kind of big first transition, and then Chief Smith led it through the next big transformation. And then obviously Chief Cook and Chief Walls are continuing to build and transform upon that. But their leadership during those massive changes are wide. One was amazing leadership. Two, it was very successful. In other words, we became who we are as Coring Township. We're recognized across the country, especially locally, but definitely across mm-hmm. the country as well uh, for the things that we do. Without their leadership, those things wouldn't happen. Mm-hmm. Without a strong person at the time. So then Chief Smith, uh, Station 109 was built under his tenure. When he was, now his retirement is going to leave, it was a natural fit to say, hey, let's name Station 109. So they're the only two people I know of, and that's totally why. Just... Raw leadership, transformational change under their leadership.
1: That's that's mm-hmm. wonderful. That's amazing. So you talked a little bit about the volunteers. Did the volunteers not become the part-time many firefighters? Did. Yeah, many okay.
0: did. So it depended on personal circumstance. Okay. So the other transformational change that occurred was our training. So if you look at volunteerism in the 30s, 40s, 50s, even 60s, in the early 70s, uh, it was as much a social club as it was service. So the hook, right? So you you have to have a hook. Back then, and I know I'm going to talk like an old guy. I'm 57, but I'm still going to talk like an old guy. There was more of a sense of community. So I grew up on East Chapman Road right next to Station 102, and I knew, even as a kid, I knew every person's name on my street. Every person on my street knew my name. They knew my parents. They, we all knew our home telephone numbers because we were no cell phones. Right? Of course. So, if someone was sick, injured, hurt, needed help, there's a lady Dorothy Hill a couple houses up. My stepfather would come in and he would say, "Hey, Mrs. Hill, you feeling good? Grass needs to be mowed. It wasn't. Do you want to go mow?" Mrs. Hillsgrass, Mm -hmm. it was, yes, sir. And he got up and he went, because she needed help. She she was an older woman and she was sick or whatever. You were being voluntold. Yes. (laughs) That's what we were raised in. But we all knew each other. There's this sense of service. You know, you knew when somebody needed help. So folks wanted to serve and help their community that way. And the training was minimal. If you could see the old Red Cross training books that these guys used, it's a, a little, almost a brochure. How do you give oxygen? How do you stop bleeding? How do you press a chest?
1: Basic, basic. Very, First aid.
0: Very basic. There wasn't a whole lot of treatment. We didn't even get paramedics until 1989, you know, 88, 89. Wow. Uh, so that evolution, if you worked a regular job, you know, you work four or five days a week, 10, 12 hours a day. Now they told you you had to come in and do another 300 hours of training a year. Some people just couldn't do that. Mm -hmm. So they wanted to serve, they just couldn't rise to the training level necessary. And that's one of the reasons I had delayed mine was I couldn't go to fire school, EMT school, or paramedic school while doing the job I was doing until I got the cooperation of my boss. And I think other people were in that circumstance. So the ones that could raise their game, committed to the part-time, because there was a different level of training Mm-hmm. You know, that they had to do in you know, Monday night drills and things. You had to attend, you had to a- attend X number of them. If you didn't, you know, there was punishment or things for that, and you might possibly have to leave the agency. So I would say that every volunteer wanted to do it because of that sense of community and that wanting to help their neighbors. They just couldn't. I mean, back then, folks had four kids, five kids, eight kids, right? Life stuff, right? And jobs. They just couldn't do it. Uh, and then it, it just evolved from that to where the run volume just kept just kept increasing and kept increasing and kept increasing to where we needed more career staff to make sure we had coverage. So that was kind of why the transition occurred. Uh, you needed to make it more, well, we needed to be more professional anyway, right? We've, yes. Uh, let's just start with that. But we needed to provide the level of service the community expected, and the part-time ranks were dwindling, and that's why we had to keep so volunteer ranks were doing the link, Then the part-time ranks started at the And now almost everybody's moving toward all career departments. Mm-hmm. Which know. is
1: probably a good thing because, like you said, population growing, needs are growing. Yeah.
0: And protection. So when you think about those guys are paid a buck a run just so if they got hurt, they might get a little bit of money. You know, part-time we had no protection. Wow. You know, if you got hurt, there's nothing. You know, you got a little bit of workers' comp, but not much. You know, a few thousand bucks a year or something. Uh, so it, it's good that our folks now have better protection in case they get hurt because we do get hurt we get injuries. So that that caused these transformational changes. Um, but yeah, we make we're going to break my opinion 10,000 EMS runs this year. I think we're going to do it.
1: In the history of the department?
0: Yeah, we we've, we've never broken 10,000 EMS runs. Cuz we go up every year about 3 to 8% it varies. And I think it's going to happen this year. You can't make that many runs. You can't have 26 Twenty-five runs a day go off with people coming from the house or half-empty shifts. Right. So that's why these transformational changes occur.
1: Ten thousand—that's a big milestone.
0: It. I was we just talking with Jennifer uh, a couple of days ago, and I'm like, I think, I think it's going to happen this year. Or at least it looks like it's going to happen.
1: Yeah. Especially in Coloring Township, it seems like there's also a lot of career firefighters who come from a family of firefighters like yourself. Mm-hmm. So I know we've got um, A.J. Coley, who's one. McNally, the McNally's here. Brandon Barnes is another one. Brandon Barnes, just you don't see that in a whole lot of other professions, right? You don't see, you know, generation after generation of sports newscasters kind
0: of thing. No, it's not necessarily unique because I'll say farming is another example of that. My family has a lot of farmers, so there's a lot of generational following in your grandparents, fathers et cetera, most footsteps in that. Uh, so it's more, what are professions that you feel valued in and that you get value from? And anything that services a community or provides for a community, like farming or police or firefighters, tend to have that because one of the things that makes these jobs so amazing is we do get to serve community. And even though you see some crazy stuff, you get value out of helping people or putting out a fire or something like that. Uh, and that's not in every profession. So.
1: We talked about the buildings a little bit. Um, how have firefighter needs just in like on a building level changed generation to generation? Because you said before it was volunteer firefighters, right? Yeah. So they weren't really in the fire station so much. Now you guys work 24-hour shifts and you're there all the time.
0: Yeah, that's, it's a generational change and a needs change. So here's, here's what I mean by that. I'm being be an old guy again for a minute. When we were volunteer, they didn't need bunker. It just wasn't a purpose. Right. They'd come from their house. Why would you commit space to a bunker? Mm -hmm. Then once we've got uh, the daytime guys, we still didn't have bunker because they weren't there at night. Then in 1984, when we got part-time personnel, we started signing up and working shifts at night. There was a need for it. So um, I was not on then, obviously, but my memory from stories is. They adapted the training room or the upstairs room, and the beds flipped out of the wall.
1: Oh, like a Murphy bed?
0: Yeah. So, Neat. to so the same space, but right? you could still use this room. The bed came down, and then eventually, you know, they started to get more organized and stuff, um, and create a traditional bunk room. But again, traditional bunk room is a door in; all the beds are open. There's no. no it's like summer camp kind oh, of thing. Yeah. It's <laughs> it says summer camp, just not bunk beds. So if they're snoring, you hear it. You know, if their pagers going on, you know, just it would drive you nuts. I would take guys' pagers apart because they wouldn't reset their pager, drive me insane.
1: Thank goodness they didn't have cell phones back then. Oh, my God. Thank
0: God we didn't have cell phones. Because <laughs> I think it's worse now, right? All the messages go off. Mm-hmm. Uh, and speaking of that, a semi-funny thing, because uh, you may not ask about this, is how they were dispatched back in the day compared to now. Yeah. And it's kind of fascinating because think of the 1930s or 40s or 50s. It was literally a station sign. Wow. People didn't even have phones in their house. Not everybody. So, like
1: the tornado siren warning would go off.
0: That means from the, the firehouse. Station. You don't even know what it is. Like, you just go if you heard it. Well, like my grandfather, for example, was on a tractor. If he's on a tractor, he didn't hear a siren. No right. Way he's he's too siren. loud. He'd be a mile and a half away on a tractor. He wouldn't know. Right. So you had to hear the siren, or then because that wasn't that effective, mm-hmm. uh, they instituted where they put cell or not, I'm going to say cell phones because of today. Uh, Cincinnati Bell, they paid to install phones in local houses around the firehouse. Then folks agreed to, hey, if you heard the siren, you would call, you would literally call every. You'd call dated, Joe on the
1: tractor to make sure whatever that. It was.
0: But they couldn't get Joe on the tractor because Joe had no cell phone. Right. So they'd ring everybody's house phone on the roster until they got enough people to make the run. Wow. That's how a run would occur. Just think about that. Like Now we're used to this instantaneous, like we dispatch, as the dispatcher's picking up or answering the phone within five or 10 seconds, it's already being popped out. It's already being dispatched. This might've taken an hour. Wow. You know, to get somebody out.
1: And in the fire service time, time often means lives. It's, it's
0: every Most of the time it's not life or death, but when it is, so that's, Massive change. And then they went to Plectrons, and I believe it was the 60s, uh, 60s or 70s, but I think it was the 60s, and they basically were a base station that would go off. And I remember them in my house, and loud as heck, right, it would just just bang, right, because they had to wake you up. Right. And you'd have to hear it, and then you'd have to determine if it was you. And then then they got them where you could wear them on your belt, so they made them small enough, and I was issued that version of a Plectron. Basically, looked like a big one, just... Just mini. ...in your hand, about the size of a hand. You'd wear it on your belt, and it would go off, and you would hear the dispatch. But even then, you weren't sure it was you. It did was, they
1: have to call the names out, or how did you they, know? So,
0: originally, it was Lincoln's. So, it was, you know, 3 Lincoln 10, 3 Lincoln 20, and that also designated station. And if they wanted a specific engine, they would say 3 Lincoln, say 11. hmm But... If it was like a structure fire, they would you'd have to know it was in your, like you were on what we call a dispatch car. Oh. So even in my career, up to, I would say, early 2000s, we would hear a dispatch for, say, Station 25. I would have to listen for the address. So taking nighttime is where it would be the most of Daytime, it's easy. Map books are everywhere. Bam, within, within five seconds, I can look at the map book. And I kind of knew I grew up in the township, but... Right. Middle of the night, 2 a.m., boom, run goes off. They name who the primary is. Mm -hmm. You'd have to look and see if the street was what you were. Like in your zone. Like if you were the fourth engine, and it's a four-engine dispatch, Mm -hmm. they didn't name you. You had to see where you were on the card and then go or not. So occasionally we'd screw up. like you. Oh, I don't think that's me or whatever. You'd look at the wrong page or something. Oh man! And then thank God they finally got to the point where they name everybody. That's good. So it sets off everybody, names everybody. There's no confusion. There's no other than some small internal thing like changes. Mm -hmm. What they we finally got to where they said if you're named you go and if you're not you don't. I was like, thank
1: easy peasy. you guys even have a, like a function where it tells you where the fire hydrants are. So yes. if you do pull up on a, on a house fire, not only does the GPS tell you the street and exactly where it is, but also them. where to find the fire hydrants. We had to find
0: them. We had to see them. You had no idea where they were. Now, I take that back. We, we did have dots in our book, but they weren't perfect. Right. So the dot was just next to the house or three houses down. But, you know, we still had to find it because mm-hmm. it wasn't as detailed as now. Like now the maps are like dead on. Right. Like you, can, you can actually choose a version on your phone that shows it topographically. It shows green space, businesses, almost like you do when you do a Google map drive.
1: That's impressive. It's all up
0: to the individual what they want to use. So that's a massive change in A, how we identify, how we're dispatched. Mm-hmm. So much better now. No, like, no I'm a huge fan of, <laughs> of what we're doing. today versus that. But it was exciting because you had to. Like, high
1: alert all the time. focus,
0: And then the whole way there, you had to make sure you were telling your driver where to go. If you had a really good driver, they might do the right thing, but sometimes they thought they knew where they were going, and they didn't either, and I've done it. Okay. like, hey, I got it. You didn't get out of here.
1: Right. You some, think you remember a shortcut well, some street's dead there?
0: End. Oh. A bunch of them. So they're, it's the same street, but there's a gap. So you think, oh, I got this, and you're coming down this road. It's a dead end, and you can literally look 50 feet, 100 feet. You can't get to it. So you have to come back out.
1: Oh, my goodness. All the way
0: around did it on a structure fire once. Not a good night. Oh. <laughs> not a good night.
1: Do you remember the first run you ever went on?
0: Uh, I actually do. Uh, and I do for two reasons. One, because I made a mistake that was semi-funny. Uh, my mentor, my big brother, whatever you want to call him, was a guy named Rick Shiba, and uh, it was in the city of Fairfield. So I started at the city of Fairfield. Okay. Because believe it or not, when I applied for Coleraine, even though my grandfather was a founding member, my Father, who he was to me, stepfather was a district chief. We only hired people with experience. I didn't have any. So I had to go get my training and go somewhere else because they weren't doing recruit classes when I came on. They Mm. started them again the year after. Oh, goodness. Yeah, it's always funny, right? (laughs) So I went to uh, City Fairfield for my fire recruit training and Scarlet Oaks for my EMT training. So anyway, my first run, I think I remember because of the mistake more than anything, but I was super juiced. He's my mentor, older guy. He was probably 50 back then. <laughs> and he, he hands me the breather mask to put on a patient. And I was so, so nervous and excited. We have to fill the mask with our thumb. We cover the hole and it fills the reservoir bag. Well, I was so pumped up, I didn't let off and I blew the bag. So the bag went poof. So I'm looking at the patient. I'm a foot away from him and they're like, can't breathe. I'm trying to do this bag. And he goes poof. I'm like, uh oh. Like, I don't know what the hell to do. I'm brand new. Right. He's calm as a cucumber. He's like, just grab me another one. He said, let up, let up, and just calm down, kid. And then I put it on him, everything was fine. So that was my first fire. Oh, man. So my first fire was a was a dryer fire, so it wasn't, I remember just because it was my first one. Uh, but it was a dryer. They catch on fire pretty often, actually, because people don't clean out their lint or the or the hose that goes outside. So the heat, that, that humidified it, the air did not leave. Just it was exciting as heck just to go in there and go after that, but... Uh, a lot of other ones have been more exciting or more tragic. Right. Circumstance. But, but that was my first one. It wasn't particularly awesome, but it was still a fire.
1: It was still a fire. It was still a fire. First time you got to go out as a mm-hmm. firefighter.
0: Yeah.
1: Do you have any fond memories of the the fire department from, like, your dad or your grandpa's?
0: Yeah, tons of them. And, and going back to the community thing, and, I, I just, and I've noticed this huge shift in society. They're just not connecting like they used to. So back in the day, if you moved into a house, you would throw a housewarming party and a housewarming party just wasn't for your family, it'd be for your neighbors. And the whole point of it mm-hmm. was your neighbor bring over casserole or brownies and you meet your neighbor. And not that you wanted to be your neighbor's best friend, just you knew your neighbor. Right. If you had an emergency, you needed help, wanted to watch your house when you're on vacation. Those were things back then. Got sick, they'd mow your lawn, like Mrs. Dorothy Hill. Yep. You know, That was so much more prevalent back in the day than now. So my memories back then are just all these amazing people doing things together. And it's going to sound silly, but one of my just absolutely awesome memories, I can't get out of my head, was the festivals they would do. So once a year, they'd have a huge picnic for the entire department. So families, kids, grandkids, everybody. And back then, there were no gas grills. Mm -hmm. Everything was charcoal.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Oh, my God. The... The food was terrible for you. (laughs) Awesome tasting, right? Yeah. Salt everywhere, right? Salt was in a, like a bucket almost. You could grab it with your fist. Those old silver ones, ask your parents or grandparents about it. It was huge holes in the end. And the best food that they had was corn. They would uh, charcoal roast corn or like grill corn Mm -hmm. in the husk. So they'd soak it. They'd grill it that way. And when you went up for an ear, they the firemen, They'd work it right. Right, It's Kind of, of a course. fundraiser, kind of a family thing. Yeah. They peel the corn back. They literally took the entire ear and these huge tubs of butter, real butter. They would dunk it, and then there's this massive salt shaker.
1: Oh my gosh! And, then you'd eat.
0: and I'm sure that sounds my, like heaven. My current <laughs> hypertension probably traces back to that, but I cannot describe to you how good the food was. It just that was unbelievable but that sense of community, we just ran around like idiots all day as kids mm-hmm. and the adults did what adults do right Whatever. They had a beer, they had a Coke, you know, well, back then maybe not even that cause tab was a thing Coke might've existed. Uh, well, tab was the first diet, I guess. Uh, but there was just this sense of like everybody knew everybody and everybody cared. I'm not saying he didn't fight. I'm not saying you didn't have the usual stuff you see on TV. I'm just saying that everybody gave a crap about everybody mm-hmm. and everything in the community Now, I think people, I I don't want to paint a broad stroke, but just people are so busy and so absorbed that they're not as focused on the community.
1: Right. They're more siloed.
0: Yes. And and it could be the kids are now in five sports. It could be they're both working full-time jobs or three jobs or whatever. It's just different. It's hard for me to put my finger on it, but it is different. Just a different sense. Different. Different way of living. So, I miss that. that. That early... Like, i could go to the firehouse as a kid, and they didn't care that you were a kid. They, they loved the fact you were a kid. There was a guy who was missing a finger, and he would always cut you cards for a dollar. It was hilarious. This, this guy was one of the, just a fun guy. So he'd have a deck of cards, because he always played cards and stuff, whatever. And he'd say, hey, kid, cut the cards. If you beat me, I'll give you a dollar. And I can still remember he would do it, and occasionally he would be funny about it he would drag his fingers through and wouldn't be able to draw the card because he'd be like, ha, 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 I'm missing a finger, right? You can't. Nobody does it anymore. <laughs> nobody makes those jokes anymore. But no matter whether he beat you or not, you always got the dollar. Aww. So even if he beat you, he wouldn't show it to you. If I beat him, he would. But he goes, well, you beat me again, kid. But I'm like, I couldn't have. He right. Uh, just stuff like that. That's they were cool. just amazing, community-oriented, family, salt-of-the-earth people. Just incredible. And, and I'm not saying they're not that way now. It mm-hmm. just wasn't as deep. Right. And I just, my personal experience.
1: Well, I, f- I figured they had more time for bonding than two. We because did. you said the, ru- the run volume just skyrocketed yeah. out of nowhere. Run so. volume
0: was lower. Kids weren't in five sports. Right. You know, just some of that. There was differences in that. Uh, that probably led to those changes, but there's definitely changes. Mm-hmm. That that have occurred and how a, how a community tries to create the fabric that makes it a community. Excellent. I know people still do it. I know they try. They're just I think they're just too busy. Yeah. Life is fuller now with stuff than it used to be. And then the camaraderie is still there. You know the agency, the, the way the guys Iraq guys and guys interact, the way they hang out together, the way they care about each other has not changed. That's the same.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I think the difference is. Everybody's so busy, it's hard to put that web out deeper, is, I guess. Right. And I think a size of our agency, you know, back in the day, we'd work pretty much any unit day. You just sign up for days, you're available. So I worked with everybody at some point. Then once we created unit days, I kind of only worked with that group. And then we created station assignments, which was necessary because I was right. one of the big feedbacks from our line of duty depth in Kuwait. Uh, was then you become isolated even more. So now I was with the same five people instead of 150 people. Right. Uh, and we had Monday night drills where 60 or 80 people were there. Well, now we train on shift. Mm. So I'm training and working and running big runs with the exact same people, which is fine. Right. But I don't get to know the other hundred as well. Right. As we used to. I used to know everybody. I used to know their wives' names. used to know how many kids they had. Everything. Aww. Now, granted, that was the twenty-six. Even when we were co-rain, we were still separate. Not a lot of people know that. So it was District 26 was matched with 103, and that's where you worked. Or District 25 was matched with 102, and that's where you were. Um, you really couldn't cross much. And it was my stepfather, who I consider my father, who who changed that. Okay. He was sick of it. So, on a funny note, I'm going to offend the 25, the original 25 guys out there. The cool kids were at 26, which is where I was at. And uh, the 25 guys didn't like 26 guys because it was, it was this com- competitive thing going on, right? Of course. We're better than you. You can't work with us, can't work with them. Of course. And uh, 25s kept losing people. We always said it because you we know, were the cool kids and they weren't the cool kids, right? Nobody left 26s. Everybody stayed. Nobody left the agency. And it probably wasn't true, but it's just what you tell yourself, right? Mm hmm. So my stepfather ran the part-time group, right? He was the division chief of all part-time operations. He said, I'm done with this crap. You're going to sign up, but we'll put you wherever you want to put you. Right. Which then we yeah. found out nobody was better than anybody. We're all the same. But it was just fun for a while. Yeah, just we kind of a
1: fun rivalry. Competitive
0: in ways. Like a sibling sort of Could thing. we beat you to a fire? You know, we'd always rub it in. We'd call and say, ah, we beat you in your district. That kind of crap. No, we that doesn't happen as much now. A little bit, but not... Right. Not like it was yeah. back in the day. Yeah. Was there
1: anything in the the just mountain of history and files that you inherited that when you were going through it kind of just stuck out to you? Like, oh, this was kind of neat. I didn't know that.
0: Well, some of it has to do with like how they funded. So there was a time when Grosbeck auctioned a ton, literally 2,000 pounds of coal as a fundraiser. And you, you say to yourself, huh? Like who the heck was using coal? Well, I, going back to my youth, most of the people I knew, farmers, family members, heated with wood. They didn't have HVAC. Some did, some didn't. So, something like that, you're like, A ton of coal. Who the heck used
1: coal? Yeah, who coal? wants
0: coal? Well, people used coal to heat their houses. My grandmother used wood, but I knew people who used coal. So, if you went down and these would be houses that were built in the late 1800s, early 1910, 1905. You go down, and there would be coal in a basically their basement, Mm -hmm. and the furnace was next to it. And they literally had to shovel a ton of coal and throw it in the furnace to keep it burning to heat the house. Oh my gosh! So, made sense, right? You're going to auction or sell and raise money on something people need. Mm -hmm. So they sold coal. (laughs) (laughs) Just the craziest stuff ever, you know. Probably the most interesting stuff I found with the pictures. Uh, there were so many, so many. And I've seen them before, but I really dug into them when, when Chief Daryl Brown died. Again, to process, the whole emotional, whatever aspect of it. And just some of the pictures of these goofy people doing goofy stuff, right? Yeah. These funny faces and pretending they're picking their nose. You know, just goofing off kind of stuff. I just found that hilarious because you forget some of that, right? Mm-hmm. Cause, you know, all the blood and guts and gloom and doom and you yeah, but you realize that that these folks still had sense of the humor, they still had camaraderie, they still all did all this stuff.
1: Mm-hmm. But
0: just seeing that, the pictures, the equipment, the, the uniforms—you're like, you got to be kidding me! Uh, they wore white overalls. Oh, that sounds like a bad idea. It sounds insane, right? <laughs> but, like painters' overalls. Yes, exactly. With I've I've got some in my house. I've uh, I've actually got Larry Shadz. Uh, Larry Shad was the last original mm-hmm. Dunlop member. I've been in communication with him for years. I have a lot of his memorabilia, and he uh, we joke about it like white, like you're gonna get it minimum dirty, right? And then let's talk about blood, yeah, <laughs> like white. But that back then there were 700 different colored clothing. white made sense to them because that was probably the common painter's overall thing. And they went, Well, this painter overall, this will work, it'll cover your regular clothes, mm-hmm. fairly non absorbent because it was a dense. Probably a cotton material, but you know, it's kind of dense. Like almost
1: like a denim jean yeah, like kind of. Thing. Yeah, and,
0: uh, But I'm like, wait, you had to go through these things like crazy. But they had really cool stitching on the back. They had their names on them. Just neat, neat stuff. I've got two of them framed. My grandfather's and my, my father's in my house. Mm-hmm. Um, but Stuff like that, I would say. No, that's great. Um, and stuff like that helps you get through the line of duty guest stuff. You know, I know you may or may not ask about the line of duty stuff. I figured mm-hmm. at some point we would hit it. Yeah. Um, So in 1964, on the first one, one of the guys who was there was still alive four years ago, and I interviewed him. And I'm not going to name him because I don't know if he wanted that. And and he may have passed by now because he'd be 100 now. Uh, But he did say I could share his name and stuff internally, like you know, internal documents, which I did with the department. And I actually just reset it out because getting ready for you made me think about him again. But uh, when you think about luck and chance, just raw, like, what if stuff, he would have been one of the fatalities, but the driver didn't come in.
1: Oh. So again,
0: think about how they're dispatched back then. Right. Maybe a Plectron. I can't remember if he said Plectron, but if not, it was a siren and or phone call. So he wasn't the driver that night. He was a jump seat guy. When the driver didn't show, he was asked to drive. Mm-hmm. which placed him not with the officer going in. Oh, gosh. And he still thinks about that today. His wife was with him, and we, we had this amazing, you know, about an hour discussion. And they were still tore up. Like, you could still see the emotion from it. But it mm-hmm. caused the same emotional, marital, departmental issues. People left over it. They just couldn't believe that this was possible. Mm-hmm. And then there was another man who he could not name mm-hmm. because he's 96 and it was so long ago. Right who held the officer's glasses. So just think about it. Back then, they didn't have glasses for your mask. Now they do. You can clip them into your, like, if you needed glasses, they'd clip them in, and they'd always be in there. Oh, wow. So he didn't want to damage his glasses, and he couldn't wear them because he couldn't get to see them. So he handed them to one of the other firefighters, said, hold these. And then that firefighter watched him, the two firefighters that died, Hammond Price. Go in, watch them go through the smoke, and never come back out. Oh. Within like a minute, the roof blew. You know, the whole thing went sideways. So when you think about those just little things, like what if? Right. If that whoever was the assigned driver showed up, this guy would have passed. Right. He would have been in the line of duty. Oh. Now, granted, someone else would have lived, but just those little things eat at you, and that's just part of this profession. Almost
1: like those divine intervention it moments. It really is
0: so creepy when you think about it. And you can see that. You know, they both were like just the lucky like how did this luck happen right and our, our second line of duty death uh, was a heart attack situation which you've chronicled you've done things so you're well aware of that mm-hmm. um, and that led to or helped lead to better physical fitness and health for our agency because that type of thing is common right especially back then because we didn't have fitness routines there wasn't all this focus on health mm-hmm. I already described the food. <laughs> How All the better. How amazing of Christ we cooked with Crisco and bacon grease never got thrown away. Mm-hmm. It got put in the Crisco can. And that's what you fried pork chops with the next you know what I mean? Like, oh, of course. Yeah. So, so there wasn't that emphasis, but incense like that started to teach us a lesson that we needed to be healthier, et cetera. So there was a sliver of, it was always just a sliver of positivity, of training. How do you change so that it doesn't happen again? Those types of things. Uh, They come out of tragedies, and that's one that came out of that one.
1: That land of duty death, too, is Lieutenant Charles Palm. Yes, Lieutenant
0: Charles. Uh, So then, you know, fast forward obviously to 2008 and uh, Captain Broxman and Firefighter Shira. uh, There was a third member on that crew that could have perished as well, but he had literally gone to move more hose. He'd gone to. So again, just little tiny circumstances can change how your life exists or doesn't exist in some cases. Uh, And then the mistakes that were made that day, and I'm going to freely say this on the microphone now, uh, that I made every mistake they made that day except one. I've done every one. Every one. But I've been lucky enough not to string them together. And we talk about Swiss cheese theory. Basically, if you make one mistake, big deal, two, whatever. But if you string two or three or four together and they line up perfectly, then tragedies occur. So... I'm not casting as far as anybody. I I have literally done everything but one mistake. I've passed houses. I've gone through the front door without doing, because we didn't do 360s. So horrible tragedy ripped this organization to shreds. But one positive thing, again, tragedy sometimes leads to positive changes, is our organization adapted to what we learned that day. Mm-hmm. We now routinely do 360s. We make sure that we do a great scene size of the 4-1. We do a better risk analysis. Uh, we, we honestly were very aggressive prior to that, and that's just who we were. It's how I was taught. It's, we just, you go after it. Right. And if you did not go after it, you weren't a real fireman. That's just, I'm sorry, that's the culture, right? Mm-hmm. And our culture has evolved to say there's times you shouldn't. There's times you should we have to be aggressive interior tiered firearms. We have to be. But when faced with some things, mm-hmm. after doing a proper assessment, we can prevent a tragedy by going, oh, wait a minute. This is different. We want to be aggressive, but in this case, we shouldn't. Right. And I think it's really transformed our agency in a good way, but unfortunately took a tragedy.
1: To make that, that, that happen, yeah. Even the even the science behind firefighting seems like it's changed, where in the past I've heard, you know, decades ago you get on the scene of a fire and first thing you do is break out all the windows. Right? That's that's something that would not be done today. There's science of reading smoke, if it's this color, if it's that color, if you notice it going this way or that way, floating in between rooms. I mean,
0: Yeah, it's 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 amazing to see the difference. So so my fire training began in February of nineteen ninety four. So only about twenty nine years ago. Yeah, I think it's right. Uh, and it was pretty much go get the damn thing. Mm-hmm. As, far as my as It was. It wasn't a lot of theory. There wasn't a whole lot of thinking. It was get off the truck, get the hose, get a tool, get your stuff, follow your officer, go find it and kill it. Mm-hmm. Stay with some fire. Yep. Front door ninety nine out of a hundred times. We didn't walk around nothing because if you weren't moving. Fairly aggressively towards where you thought the fire was. And we, we learned smoke behavior and stuff, but not to the depth uh, that we do now. Now we've we really dug into it. We have tick cameras now. We didn't really have tick cameras then. And uh, if you weren't getting it, you're kind of called names. Like, you know, I'm just being honest. It's like right. that macho yes. kind of thing that existed. Uh, so... In the meantime, we've learned, oh, we can tell almost, not quite, but almost where it is from the outside, just by what the smoke looks like, where it's at, is it filling the front door or not? And we definitely learned, do not break the darn windows. And boy, did we break a lot of darn windows. And there's two things that's bad about that. One, it basically set the house on fire. Mm -hmm. Number two, the poor resident, if we actually knock the darn thing out, they're not going to fix 10 windows. And now windows are nuts, but they were still expensive back then. Mm-hmm. So if we do our job right, we read it right, we attack it smartly, we go home safely, and we sometimes the resident can get back in the house. Wow. And I've seen that where we do a good job and they can get back in the house. Their stove might not work. They might not be able to use their garage because it was a garage fire, but they can live in their house.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: that's a huge change. So by doing it smarter, we're safer, and I think we're way more effective. Uh, we we attacked some crazy stuff on the inside. And I'm not going to lie. Exciting. Mm-hmm. Super exciting. But it just wasn't smart. Yeah. If we do it smartly, it's still exciting. It's just, just
1: a different kind of thrill.
0: Different kind of thrill. And that's, I'm glad it changed. I'm glad that we've evolved. I just wish it didn't take a you know a tragedy. And it's always a we, Even before then, we adapted to things that happened elsewhere. Mm-hmm. It was just our turn in the barrel where, unfortunately for us, the Swiss cheese theory, things lined up, you know, the right kind of fire, the right place, the hidden basement, horrible topography.
1: Bad intel. Just
0: everything. Again, Swiss cheese theory, it took 10 things for that to happen, mm-hmm. maybe 12, and they happened. So, yeah. again, tragedy ripped us apart, but over time, we... We grew through it, and then again, that's where that leadership. Even going back to the leadership thing, uh, a weaker department would not have survived. that. Mm-hmm. So and that, that was my second line of duty death, actually, because I went through one at Springdale, and uh, you know, witnessed some of the same stuff. But again, strong leadership is what gets us through it. It's a rough week, month, year, decade, but you
1: All right, you pull together. You
0: honor them by making changes. Mm-hmm. So that you can prevent those from occurring. So we just changed our tactics and strategy. But I'm telling you, I'd have gone through. I'd have gone through the front door exactly like they did. No, without a doubt. Man, I'd have done the same damn thing. That's what we did. Right. What we did.
1: You talk about that strong leadership and learning and adapting. Another thing that you hear a lot, that macho mentality, Mm -hmm. also something that's changing. Mm -hmm. Uh, In the fire department, I've heard a lot just in my short time here, you know, if you can't handle the job, go paint houses.
0: That's a very common one said by a very famous officer here, and his nickname was the coolest nickname in the history of nicknames. His nickname was the Prince of Darkness. Oh, gosh. So just chew on that for about two seconds. I won't name him. I would name him if we were off the camera, because you know him. Uh, He's retired, but... One of the best offers I've ever had. Uh, one of my great mentors here. He was tough, and someone he was tough on called him to Prince of Darkness one day, and it just kind of stuck. So, He's yes. not
1: Ozzy Osbourne.
0: No, <laughs> it, no, it was the it was the you better have your stuff together if you work for this guy. He was tough and harsh, and but I'm telling you, he was one of the best guys I've ever worked with. The people that have worked here, and the people I worked with at Fairfield, the people I worked here at Springdale. I've taught at Stone, Love Loving Sims, all of this. So many agencies I've been engaged with, across the board, same thing. Mm. We all want to say Corrine is special, and it is, but I feel like other agencies are more like us than you think. They're, everybody cares. Everybody loves it. And the, the men and women here are just, and I'm not saying I suck up. I'm at the end. I don't have to suck up to anybody, right? Right. I mean, You've you served your time. Um, but I'm telling you, the people here are just unbelievable. Absolutely, I I put this stuff on. Everybody always wonders why I wear this shirt. Have You noticed I'm the only one who wears this. The uniform shirt, the actual panel shirt. Have you noticed that?
1: I have not. Most people
0: it. don't think about it, but my students notice it. Right. Um, it's because of the pride I have in this organization. Hmm. I don't want to give this up. I could wear something different. You know, there's things that we we have an option.
1: Right, button down but, polo. But to me,
0: this is me. It's always been me. Every day I've come to work, this is what I've worn, and. My wife thinks I'm nuts, but I've been aware to the day I retire. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to change because of the pride I have. And I, and I have that pride because of the people that came before me. Period. End of story. And It's not made up. You can see it on my face. Yeah. The, the listeners can't see it, but you can
1: But I'm sure they can hear the sincerity yeah. in your voice. I've always
0: loved this place. It'll be a bad day when I leave. A real bad day. It's coming sooner, I think it's, sooner than <laughs> I want it to be. Yeah, no, a neat, neat place. And I hope if it's non Col rain folks listening to this that it might make them interested in visiting or filming the cold And if it's Col rain folks who are listening to this, that they know that there's an agency here that cares about it. because we do. It's not made up. It's not BS. It's, you know, you go back to that activity you were talking about. We've done that my entire career. It's It's not new. Right. It's not new at all. We just can do more of it because there's more of us.
1: Mm-hmm. More firefighters, more community yeah. involvement.
0: I mean, you're used to only be 15 of us on, 15 to 18 of us on, and some stations, there only one of us in the station. Oh, Up wow. to 2,000. One of my first career shifts here, and my group was hired here, so I was career at City of Springdale, a part-time lieutenant here. My hiring group in 2000, which happens to include the current chief, uh, the current uh, O2, chief, so it's Chief Alamal, Chief O'Muller, Battalion um, Chief Tim Beach, myself, and there were two other gentlemen
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, that are not with the same one. That hiring group was to end that, but yet, like two months after that happened, I was at Station 102 all by myself for six hours. I'm sitting there like,
1: what the heck?
0: What am I supposed to do? Right. So, you know, very quickly after that, it, you know, it got fixed. But, but that's why we've had this expansion is you can't deliver what we deliver with one or two people, mm-hmm. and we always have three. Like, we will not run a station anymore without 3 peak. The outlying station. Right. The main ones have a lot more than that.
1: Yeah, 25, 26 usually. Just picture yeah.
0: that. you know. And I guess part of this, you wanted stories, right? Yeah. So there's a semi-funny story. Now, I won't name the guy. But uh, he went to a structure fire by himself because he was the only one in the station. He put the truck and pump, pulled the hose line, drug it in the house with no turnout gear or SCBA on, and put out a kitchen fire. He thought he was going to get like a Medal of Valor, got suspended.
1: Oh, man. Because we
0: had two in row. He did something very dumb and unsafe.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: But he was there by himself. Right. So in his mind, again, he trained like I trained. Yep. go in. You there go, in. go in there and get it. And he's right. like, well, I'm just going to go in and get it. And he did. Oh, man. He could have died.
1: Right. Um, yeah, because he didn't know what he was walking into was necessarily.
0: Just, you're looking back at that behavior. That would never happen. A, because we would never have three people. B, because we're so much smarter. We're Mm -hmm. so much better trained. And I was trained by amazing people. There's just so much more volume to it and so much more intelligence to it. Mm -hmm. It isn't just go kill it anymore. It's think about it before you go.
1: Right. The work smarter kind of aspect. It is absolutely the work
0: smarter thing.
1: Well, let's get to smart stuff. If people want to learn more about the fire department, about its history, about if they want to be a cadet, if they want to be a Coleraine Township firefighter,
0: how can they reach out to the fire department? So we have a website, org. There will be messages put out, all kinds of stuff. And if they're interested, it, um, they have to be interviewed. They have to get background checks, all these things. They have to do a mile and a half, 15 minutes, yada, yada. But if you know good people with a clean background, because obviously you can't you can't have had a felony. You can't do drugs, you know, of any real nature. Right. Uh, you can't be in this profession. So, just if you know people like that or you're one of those people, please come and see us and try out. We've, we've had a lot of people who did, myself included, that did other things first. And then you're, you're like, hey, I want to do something awesome, exciting, that's public service oriented, et cetera. And that's why they gravitate toward police, military, fire service. Should
1: put that on the brochure. Do you want to do something
0: awesome? Well, <laughs> it, it, it really is. I, I tell because i so. Recently, I was in charge of our recruit program, and that's kind of what I tell them: If you want, you'll never be rich. You'll never be poor, but you will. If you like it, you will be fulfilled from start to finish. Because there's nothing like serving. Like I grew up in town, so I went to Northwest High School. All that. There's nothing like serving the community where where you've been. And they came and got me a few times, so I've needed the service, and they provided excellent service to me and my family. So there's something about that, I think, for me.
1: Chris, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you.
0: Glad I could uh, do this, and I hope to see how it turned out.
1: Thank you for listening to this episode of Hey Coleraine. New episodes will be available each month, so make sure to subscribe on whatever platform you get your podcasts on. And hey, we're social. Like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter and Instagram. You can also learn more about what's going on in our community by visiting our website, coleraine.org. On behalf of us here in the Coleraine Township Administration, I'm Helen, and thanks for listening to Hey Cole Rain.